This summer, uh, Mac Holt and I spent 10 days in Togo, West Africa. And this was my second trip. My wife's been twice. So we, and we have Macklin and Rose Bossy, our missionary partners, in our home all the time. They're here. They're in the United States now, and they'll be back for the Good of the Bluegrass Conference. But uh, every time we go and every time I'm with Macklin, he speaks frankly and openly about spiritual warfare. He talks about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, which we read in Ephesians 5, uh, 6, just a minute ago, and we'll be referring to that. And so this last trip, you know, I kind of have gone to Africa, and it's like, yeah, 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 Macklin, I get it. You know, sort of, sort of this snobby, Western enlightened, yet I know there's some spiritual realities out there, but I never really experienced them like Macklin talks about and experienced, and so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this trip was a little different, a lot different, actually. Second night we're there at 3 a.m., I wake up to a dream. And I, I know I dream, but I don't normally remember my dreams. And I wake up in a, a dream of a, a woman, a silhouette of a woman. And I could tell it was an African woman by the headdress and the, the clothing that she was wearing. Couldn't see her face. And she was coming at me with intent. Not such that I was scared or fearful, but I knew that she was coming at me with intent. So I woke up, kind of startled, like, wow, that was crazy, and went back to sleep. Woke up the next morning for breakfast, go down, and Mac Holt is noticeably distraught. This is his, he's been to Mexico once or twice, which is not a real mission trip. Uh, West Africa is a real mission trip. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Just kidding. Just kidding. So Mac said, Will, um, I had a horrible dream last night at 3 a.m., I said, really? He said, I woke up and I was dreading my life and my faith. I thought I was going to die. I thought someone was coming to kill me. I sung every worship song I know. I prayed every verse I know. And I was dreadfully scared that something was going to happen. I said, I was up for two or three hours just wrestling. So I heard that. I didn't say anything about my dream. I just internalized it. We eat breakfast. We go on to Macklin's office. The purpose of our trip each year when I go is to, is to preach and teach for four days in the, in the inner parts of Togo at the conference that they call Amana. And this was the day before we were to leave to go to Amana. We were doing preparations that morning. We go to Macklin's office and we're sitting there and a, and a woman walks in. And they begin to talk. And, and they, they speak French. I don't speak French, so I had no idea what they were saying. But the conversation looked like uh, jovial bantering back and forth. They were kind of both smiling and talking at, at high energy. And she left. And Macklin got real serious. And she, he said, and his only Macklin said, Brothers, that was a voodoo witch. And it hit me. That was the woman in my dream. Her silhouette was exactly the same. I didn't say anything. She said, she came to put a curse on you. She heard that we were going to preach in Atamame the next day for four days. And she came to curse you. I still didn't say anything. We go to lunch. We're sitting there. And I'm troubled, really troubled. And so I just said, Mac, Macklin, I got to tell you. Uh, Macklin, Mac had a dream at 3 a.m. And I had a dream at 3 a.m. this morning. And in that dream, all I saw was a woman coming at me. And he goes, that makes sense now. 
said, Will, did you notice when she came in the room, she stuck out her hand to shake Mac's hand, and then she reached out to hug you, which I thought was just a sign of me being one of the oldest ones in the room. She said, she was trying to put a curse on you, and I told her, in the power of Jesus Christ, she was not allowed to do that today. Chills just went through my body. Go through the day. We prayed a lot. That night at dinner, three of Macklin's children raised their hand and said, Daddy, at 3 a.m. last night, I had a very scary dream of a woman in our house. Five people at 3 a.m. with a disturbing dream of a woman who sought to put a curse on God's people. Terrifying, yet strangely empowering. So along with this experience, and over the last few years, myself seeing dramatic carnage of spiritual battles, from abuse in homes and workplaces to horrific news in the week's This week on abortion to the visceral nature of global conflict and politics, there is no shortage of evidence that the forces of evil in the heavenly realms are at work. But we tend to only view this spiritual warfare as the attacks of the evil or darkness, and we forget that God, his son, and the angels and the saints are all fighting and triumphing in these spiritual battles. And this passage is a great example of that. We get a behind-the-scenes look at intense spiritual warfare. So I chose to preach this sermon for three reasons. One, the spiritual realm is as real and present as the physical realm, no matter what enlightened Western thought tells you. It is real. Second, as I already mentioned, there is plenty of evidence all around us that there is a spiritual battle, and we should clue into that and be aware of it and engaged in it. Lastly, Robert is, beginning, is going to begin a series in Acts, and we need to see that this spiritual reality was apparent as the gospel spread in the early church. No doubt, the apostles and the early Christians faced intense and difficult struggles from the Roman Empire, but more difficult was the spiritual struggles as Paul said that they wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So our approach this morning is we'll look at the passage and then apply it. But let me read you a summary of chapter 10 that comes from a good friend of mine who's a a biblical scholar and participated in a new ESV Reformation study Bible. Listen to what he says. Daniel was one of the exiles taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar's first subjugation of Jerusalem in 605 B.C., While Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem and Ezekiel was among the exiles in Babylon, Daniel was in the royal court, interacting with Nebuchadnezzar and his successors and striving to remain faithful to Yahweh. In 539 BC, long after Jerusalem had been finally destroyed in 586, Daniel was a very old man and King Cyrus of Persia had conquered Babylon. Daniel lived through this conquest and continued his struggle to remain faithful in the halls of power, though now under a new regime. The book of Daniel breaks into two neat halves. The first half, verses chapters 1 through 6, relates several stories of Daniel's courage and faithfulness, as well as the capriciousness, vanity, and wickedness of both Babylon and eventually the Persian rulers. 
The second half of the book, chapter 7 through 12, contain a series of highly symbolic visions given to Daniel about how history would unfold. There is a twist, however, because it is clear that at the center of God's vision for history is not Babylon, not Persia, not Greece, not Rome, or any great empire, but rather the hard-pressed, though never-crushed community of God's chosen covenant people. That's powerful. And we're going to see how this played out in Daniel 10. So let's, let's dive in. Let's first understand the characters that are involved here. First, we obviously have Daniel, who you can see his Chaldean name there is Belteshazzar. At this point in this story, Daniel is probably in his 90s. You can read the book to see his incredible faithfulness in the face of incredible temptation and struggle. But because Daniel was either old in age or because of his role in the courts of Cyrus, he did not go back to Jerusalem with the exiles. Ezra and Nehemiah speak about this journey from exile back to Jerusalem, the building of the city, the building of the wall, the building of the temple. But Daniel stayed in Persia under the rule of Cyrus, which is the second main character, Cyrus. This is, he was also known as Darius the Mede, as chapter 11 tells us. This is the ruler by which Isaiah spoke about. Listen to what Isaiah said. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That's a key phrase. Lord of hosts, literally commander of the armies of God. Lord of hosts. The host is another word for armies. I have stirred Cyrus up in righteousness. He will build my city and set my exiles free. You see, Cyrus was a pagan and wicked king, but God raised him up to set Israel free. And then the third main character, which chapter 10 calls the man. Who is this man that Daniel sees? Who is this man that's talking to Daniel and telling him about this great conflict? Well, scholars are varied in their opinions. Some say it's another angel. Some say it's Gabriel or Michael. But I'm convinced from Scripture and from other scholars that this is a, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. This is Jesus appearing because, let me give a defense for this real quick. Why am I persuaded? Why are scholars persuaded? This is Jesus. Look at verse five through nine. I want you to just look there with your eyes and listen as I read, you're Daniel 10, five. Just let your eyes go there and listen as I read Revelation 1, 13 through 16. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining Sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Almost an exact parallel to how Daniel saw him and how John saw him. John saw Jesus. I believe Daniel saw Jesus. Second defense. Daniel's response and experience is the same as Paul's. When when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul and Daniel both saw the Son of God in his glory and were undone, mute, could not speak. Third defense. These pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God are all over the Old Testament. 
Jacob, on the night before he was to encounter Esau, wrestled with the pre-incarnate son of God, and he bruised his hip and then blessed him. Joshua, on the night before he is to invade Jericho, sees the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of the Lord, standing in between him and Jericho, asking Joshua, whose side are you on? Joshua, I am for the Lord. And then in Daniel 3, when Nebuchadnezzar puts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, he screams out with appalling Uh, voices, I thought we put three in there and I see four walking around and the fourth has the appearance of the Son of Man. Jesus was in the fiery furnace with them. And then Jesus is called the commander of the Lord of hosts or the commander of the armies of Lord. In fact, during his trial with Pilate, he said he had authority to call down legions of angels and end it right there. But he didn't. Here in this passage, we see that his relationship with the archangel Michael and Gabriel was one of preeminence. He was the ruler of Gabriel and Michael, and he was the one here talking to Daniel. Why is that important? Let's look how the drama unfolds. Look at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. The Hebrew for great conflict is the same root word as the Lord of hosts. It means war. What Daniel got a picture of was war. A great conflict. But who was the war against? What is Daniel looking at? Well, look at verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. He's obviously not talking about Cyrus. Who's he talking about? He's talking about a battle behind the battle. He was fighting the prince of Persia. Most scholars think this was Satan himself. That behind the army's battle that took place on, the, on earth... Jesus, Michael, the angels are fighting behind the scenes. This is not Cyrus that he's referring to. This is someone other than Cyrus who is influencing the war. This passage is speaking about what is known as territorial spirits. Spirits in the heavenly realm that influence our earthly leaders, regimes, cultures, and conflicts. Listen to what David Stevens says. Spiritual warfare was being waged in the heavenly places, and the pre-incarnate Son of God was encountering the malevolent influence of the angelic, demonic prince of Persia on the contemporary political situation. Daniel 10 clearly affirms not only the existence of powerful angelic beings, but also their ability either to cooperate with or to resist God's will. This passage further implies that at least part of what we may be in in the balance as these beings either cooperate with God's will or resist it is our welfare. Clearly we see that there is a greater battle taking place as the conflicts on earth take place. This echoes exactly what we had read. Paul said in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But there's another interesting connection that shows us is that it was spiritual. Look at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. 
nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. This is a clear picture of Daniel's fasting and praying for his people that have come out of exile and headed back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And Daniel is in a three-week prayer and fast. Now jump down to verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. 21 days, which is what? Three weeks. While Daniel is praying and fasting, he has no idea about the battle behind the battle. All he knows is that his people are in bondage and in exile and are are retreating to a world that has come undone and he is undone. And he begins to pray and Jesus comes to him and says, for three weeks, I've been fighting on your behalf. Look at what he says in verse 12. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Daniel was praying. We could stop the sermon right here and just say, pray, pray, pray. I was reminded of Revelation 5 here as Jesus approaches the throne of God to take the scroll that is completely sealed and to open its seals. What what John says is burning in that room of the throne of God is the prayers of the saints. Friends, make no mistake about it. When we pray, our prayers are utilized by God in some mysterious way to fight the battles he is fighting in the heavenly realms. That'll change your prayer life. You're actually a weapon in this. But let's not stop here and just say pray. There's something else we need to see. It's important for us to understand the motivation for this fight. We see this in verse 11 and in verse 19, where he says to Daniel twice. Verse 11, O Daniel, man greatly loved. In verse 19, O man greatly loved. The motivation for this fight the Son of God is love. God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can there be any greater enemy of God than our own sinfulness? Can there be any greater victory than the victory that Jesus won on the cross? Listen to what Paul says. On the cross in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Where did he do that? On the cross. What was his motivation? Love. Love for the glory of God and the reign of God on the earth and love for God's covenant people. Here in Daniel 10, we see God's great love and power working itself out in heavenly battles against the spiritual forces of evil that seek to destroy us. But they can't. Jesus will endure and he will triumph. And the passage tells us that. Look at this. This is an amazing connection. Look at verse 20. Then he said to Daniel, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Do you see what Jesus is saying? 
Daniel, I have come to show you this great conflict, and now I'm going back to fight Persia. And after I fight Persia, I'm going to fight Greece. Historically speaking, this was Alexander the Great. But he wasn't that great because there's a battle behind the battle with Alexander the Great, and Jesus went to fight that battle. And every battle after that, Jesus goes and fight, and he never tires. He even said to Michael, I went to confirm and strengthen him. So listen, saints of God, if you're under attack, cheer up. Jesus never fatigues. He never wearies. He never tires. Though the enemy comes in onslaughts over and over and over, Jesus is able to stand and confirm and strengthen even the archangels. He can strengthen you. The battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus came to reassure Daniel that he was loved and that his prayers were heard. So let's apply this to our day. First, I'm not even going to attempt to wade out into the waters of trying to one-to-one apply this teaching to our current political arena in the U.S. or the world. I'm not going to do that. But I will suffice it to say, we can be assured that whatever we see being fought out here in the earth is only the outplayings of a much greater spiritual battle in the heavenly realms. That is clear from Scripture. But what this demands is a simple application. We should all seek to be engaged in the fight on earth for righteousness, justice, mercy for the oppressed. And our primary aim here is to align our hearts with God's heart for these matters. By knowing that there is a battle behind the battle puts a premium on us knowing and understanding the will of God. What is God fighting for? Not what does my political party fight for? Not what does my family fight for? Not what do my friends fight for? Not what the trending fight on social media is about? Who is God fighting for? We have to seek God. Seek God and fight his battles. In Acts, as we'll get to it, as the gospel was spreading, One of Paul's mentors, Gamaliel, gave this chilling caution. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So it is imperative that we seek God and understand what his will and what his battles are. So the first application is seek God and his will. How do we do that? The most simple way of seeking him is according to his word. Immediately after the Lord Jesus Christ started his ministry by going into the waters of baptism, the scriptures say the spirit led him to the desert to be tempted by the devil. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth, the king of kings, the one fighting the princes of Persia and Greece and Rome. And he comes to earth and the first thing he does after his baptism is says, where's the devil? I'm going to right-size the authority right now. And he goes, and for 40 days, he's tempted by the devil. And the devil throws every kind of twisted, warped temptation at him. And what does Jesus, the Son of God, use to combat the devil? The Word of God. If the Son of Man utilized the Word of God to fight temptation, how much more should us mere humans utilize the Word of God? The Word of God is the power of against temptation. I had this conversation with my own children 
and with students all the time. It is fine that you know every word to a movie or to 21 Pilots or to George Jones or to Drake or whatever your choice of song is, but do you also know the lyrics to the word of God? The word of God will give you life and power against the spiritual forces evil. We need to know the word of God. But the second application is begged from that, even from this passage, is we must pray. This is one of the clearest passages to me about the connection to our prayers and the will of God and how they're exercised in the heavenly realms. Jesus came and visited Daniel in response to his prayers. Daniel was praying 21 days, and in those 21 days, Jesus was fighting the princes of the power year. What are we asking God to do in our day that could only happen if Jesus fought on our behalf? One important caveat here is important here. We're not advocating for some kind of warfare prayer, as you might think. Daniel wasn't even aware of the specific battle taking place while he was praying. He was simply burdened for his people. Daniel did not engage in aggressive prayer against the powers with the expectation of binding them or evicting them. The prophet did not pray against cosmic powers, but he prayed for the people of God and the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes. Apparently, Daniel's focus in prayer was not on the celestial warfare in the heavenlies, but on the promises of God and their fulfillment on earth. This is exactly what Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Where do you pray? On earth. We pray here. This is so important. Turn, turn quickly to that Ephesians passage that we just looked at in our New Testament reading. I want to show you how grammar matters. Ephesians 6 17, this is at the tail end of that passage that Sarah read for us earlier this morning. Ephesians 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, comma, praying at all times in the Spirit. This is not a charge from Paul, take the word of God and prayer, as that they were two separate things. They can be and are at times, but he says, take the sword of the Spirit. How are you to take the sword of the Spirit? Praying. So our first application was seek the will of God through his word. How do you seek the will of God in his word? Through prayer. You see, the scriptures tell us the will of God and prayer aligns our wills, our affections, our actions with that will. So seek God's will through the word and pray. Lastly, Last application. Can you hear your Savior say to you, O man, O woman, greatly loved? Is that hard for you to hear? Is that hard for you to believe? Is it hard for you to think that you're worth fighting for? Because you are greatly loved, God will come and visit you in your time of need and in your greatest conflicts. What conflicts are you engaged in right now that you know or of a spiritual nature, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that the spiritual forces evil are bearing down on you, and you feel their dark oppression in your life. Well, weak, wounded sinner, cheer up. You have one who is greater than all of those princes of the world. In fact, he is the prince of peace. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings, and he says to you, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt 
over you with singing. He loves you. And he will fight for you. We're going to come to the table here. And this table reminds us the cost of this fight. This table reminds us that at one distinct point in history on earth, God the Father turned his face on his son and allowed his son to receive the death blow of the enemy. Do you understand that? This is the blood of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ shed for you. He lost on that day to the powers of darkness. But make no mistake, he did not lose. He triumphed over him by raising from the dead. He's alive and he reigns with utter, total victory. This table is our reminder that Jesus, the eternal son of God, fights for you continually and he wins for you eternally. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this table, we need help believing this. Lord, we have a formulaic culture where we think that if I do A, then I'll get B. If I just act a certain way, then I'll earn your favor. Lord, this passage reminds us there's something greater going on. There is a battle in the heavenly realms for which we are not equipped to fight. Only you are equipped to fight. Help us to trust you this morning. But help us to remember that this meal is the sign of your great love to us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, give us grace now to apply these truths into our hearts, to seek your will, to seek your face, and to pray in our day that your people everywhere would trust you. Help us now to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.